Father, we pray as we think of that song that it might be true of us. That we will be fueled by the hope we have in Christ Jesus who one day will come, will return for us. He is presently preparing places for us and he'll come to receive us unto himself so that where he is, we may be also forever. And until that time, we are to occupy, we are to serve faithfully to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and to extend the kingdom of God around the world. May we be faithful, Lord. And may the cross be our song, our boast, our glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we read the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, we are immediately impressed with the fact that each gospel writer gives us a slightly different view. You've got to read all four of the gospels and put all of the stories together to have a full-orbed, complete picture of who Jesus is. For instance, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that Jesus is the king. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is the servant. In Luke's gospel, he's the perfect son, son of man. And in John's gospel, Jesus is the son of God. All four of those pictures are vitally important. Now, some of the gospel writers share the same stories, right? The same material. Uh, we call the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Sin means similar, S-Y-N, and optic is view, similar view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke use a lot of the same material. John's gospel's a little more unique in its content. But when we look at these gospels together, we have this picture of Christ. We're also impressed with the fact that each gospel writer arranges his stories sometimes differently. Sometimes they include stories that others included. Sometimes they omit stories that others have included. And sometimes they're in different places. Have you ever noticed that? Now I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1 and see something that I think is really astounding and helpful as we try to understand these gospel writers and their message. Luke is a doctor and he's writing primarily to a Gentile audience in fact he mentions the person that he's writing to in verse 3 of chapter 1 Luke says this Luke's gospel chapter 1 verse 3 therefore since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus so that you might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke also wrote the book of Acts and addressed it also to Theophilus. So we often talk about the two volumes of Luke's writings. The Gospel is volume one, the book of Acts, church history is volume two. Written to the same person. But notice what Luke says in verse three. I, first of all, investigated carefully. I did my research. I did the interviews. I collected the data. 
and then I put it together in an orderly account. He arranged it. He did some editing, not changing the stories, but deciding what would go where. And he did it with a purpose in mind. It was an intentional arrangement under the direction of the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, Luke has a purpose in mind. Now, let me give you an example of this in Luke chapter 10. There is a discussion about what is the greatest commandment, right? And what is the answer? Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, to illustrate those two points, Luke adds two stories, different than the other gospel writers. The first story he gives us is the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember that, don't you? The guy's on the road to Jericho, and he's, he's uh, jumped by bandits, and they beat him up, and some religious people pass by, but then a Samaritan comes, someone who is often hated. But he shows kindness to the, this man, and Jesus asks the question, who's the real neighbor to this guy that was hurt? And everyone says it was the Good Samaritan. Now, lest you think that that is the most important part of the law, Luke puts a story right after that about Mary and Martha. This is the story where Mary and Martha invite Jesus and the disciples over for a meal. And Martha is busy in the kitchen trying to get everything ready, and she's frantic, you know. And where's Mary? She's in the living room sitting with the boys, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha is ticked. She says to Jesus, you tell Mary to get in here and help me. And I think that's probably the right attitude. She kind of is commanding Jesus to do something. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you don't get it, do you? Mary has chosen the best thing. What's the best thing? Love God with all your heart. Sit at his feet. Put him above others. And so these two stories following the discussion of the great commandment help flesh out and apply the story to our lives. That was intentional. Now let me share with you another intentional arrangement by Luke because he's given us the story of two rich guys right next to each other so we could compare and contrast. In fact, in my Bible, when I open it up, they're on opposite pages. The first rich guy and his story is found in Luke 18. So turn to Luke 18, and we'll call this guy the wealthy politician. Maybe that's not the best name for him, because often we think of the word politician in strictly negative terms. It shouldn't be understood that way, but we often do. So we'll call this guy the, uh, the wealthy civic leader. How does that sound? <clears throat> And we read about him in verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't give false witness. Honor your father and your mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because it was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. We'll stop the reading right there. This is the profile of the wealthy, wealthy civic leader. Notice some important points about it. Number one, he's a man of authority. We're told in verse 18, he's a ruler. Uh, in Mark's gospel, we're told that he is a young ruler. And young is a relative term, so you put any age in there you want. I'm guessing he was probably in his 30s. And he was not only a uh, young ruler, but he was a good young ruler. He was moral. When Jesus listed some of the Ten Commandments, you know, don't commit adultery and don't steal and don't murder and honor your parents, I don't think the boy is showing a lot of arrogance when he says, I've kept these since I was a boy. I think that was just a statement of fact. It maybe didn't reveal his inward thinking all of the time. He might have sinned inwardly, but outwardly, why, he could say, you know, I've never committed the act of adultery. I've never killed anyone. I've never taken something that doesn't belong to me, and I've never lied about someone else, and I love my parents. I've kept all of these commandments since I was a boy. This guy was moral. And don't you love it when your rulers are moral people of integrity and honest. So I think that people love this guy. Hey, he's our ruler. We voted him in, and he's, we're voting him in for another term. This guy's good. We like him. But it doesn't stop there. He's rich. Verse 23, he had great wealth. You say, ah, there's the problem. He's rich. There's no problem with being rich. It's not a sin to be rich. Abraham was rich, right? It's a lot of guys in the Bible and women in the Bible who are people of influence and great wealth. That's not a sin. You say, but yeah, Jesus told him to get rid of all of it. You misunderstand. Paul writing to Timothy, who was pastoring in the church at Ephesus, one of the most influential cities of the day, very wealthy city, Paul said to Timothy, command those who are rich to enjoy what they have and thank God for it. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He also said, be rich in good deeds and share what you have. But he didn't say, get rid of it all. Get rid of that filthy lucre didn't say that. And there were a lot of really rich people in Ephesus. We just took a trip to that city, and we were able to go into uh, what they call the elevated homes, the terraced homes in the city of Ephesus, and the wealth was beyond imagination. And some of those people came to Christ, and it's those people Paul is telling Timothy, tell them to enjoy what God has given them. Nothing wrong with being rich. 
<laughs> Sometimes pastors really get down on rich people, you know, and they really ride them hard. And yet when they have a capital campaign, they hope their church is filled with rich people. Doesn't quite make any sense. It's not a sin to be rich. You say, well, what's going on here? Well, here's a, a rich guy who maybe has understood that wealth doesn't bring all the happiness that you think it should. For he's seeking Jesus. Did you notice that? He's seeking eternal life. First question that comes out of his mouth, a certain ruler came to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark tells us in his gospel that he came to Christ and fell on his knees. So he's honest, and he's humble, and he's seeking. He's got a real interest about spiritual things. Now some of you are saying, ah, that's the problem. He said, what can I do to gain eternal life? You can't do anything to get saved. <laughs> don't read too much into the text, okay? I don't think he's saying, how can I? I think he's a, he's a person who doesn't know anything about spiritual things, or not much. He doesn't know what he has to do. Is there something he has to do? He doesn't know. By the way, remember the Philippian jailer? Acts chapter 16? You know, he's watching Paul and Silas, and they're singing all night in the jail. Remember that story? Earthquake takes place. If the prisoners get loose, he's, he's going to lose his life, so he's about ready to kill himself. And Paul says, don't kill yourself, we're here. Now, the guy had been listening to them preach and talk and sing all night, and now he's under deep conviction. And what does he say to the Apostle Paul? What must I do to be saved? And Paul didn't say, my friend, you've got it all wrong. There's nothing you can do. He understood what, what the jailer meant. How can I get saved? And Paul said, believe in Christ. You'll be saved. So the problem is not that he's rich, and the problem isn't that he doesn't ask the question in the right way. The problem isn't that he's too haughty and puffing himself up. He's an honest, moral, humble seeker. Why, man, we'd make this guy a Sunday school, Sunday school teacher right away. He's got all those credentials. But Jesus says something to him that's very interesting. You keep the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I do. So Jesus didn't say, have you kept the Tenth Commandment? He just applied the Tenth Commandment. What's the Tenth Commandment? Thou shalt not covet. And so Jesus said, well, I'll apply that Tenth Commandment to his life. So he said, why don't you sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. Now, I don't know this for a fact, but I kind of think that if the guy said, yep, I'll sell everything and give it to the poor, Jesus might have said, you don't have to do it. I just wanted to see if you were willing. Because giving everything away to the poor does not secure your salvation. This was a test. And how does the guy respond to the test? He flunks it. Verse 23, when he heard Jesus say this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. And we read in Mark chapter 10, he left. His heart filled with sadness. And by the way, Mark 10 also says that Jesus loved him even as he was leaving because God loves sinners. He doesn't love their sin, but he loves the soul. 
And he died for us while we were still sinners and rebels. So Jesus was grieved. And Jesus said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I tell you, commentators have had a field day with this one. One guy says, there, there is a needle gate in the wall of Jerusalem. It's a real small gate called the needle gate. And if you get down and kind of crawl, if a camel gets down on all fours and crawls, it can barely get through that needle. Nonsense. Is Jesus saying it's kind of hard to save yourself, but if you work real hard, you can? No. The needle he's talking about is not a gate, it's a sewing needle. How hard is it to get a camel through a sewing needle, the eye of a sewing needle? One, one guy in one of the other services says, it's pretty hard. <laughs> no, it's impossible. Now you say, well, I could melt the camel down and you know, put him in liquid form and pour it. Not, no, no. You can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. And that's why the disciples said, well, boy, if that's true, who can be saved? And Jesus said, understand this, with men, it's impossible, but not with God. And he's talking about a rich man who loves his riches. It's impossible for a rich man who loves his riches more than God to get saved. But with God, it is possible. And just to show you that a rich man can get saved, he gives us the next story in Luke chapter 19. And this is the story of a wealthy IRS agent. And you know him by the name of Zacchaeus. Now there is a bridge miracle between the two. At the end of chapter 18, Jesus is making his way into Jericho, that beautiful city of palm trees. It's where... King Herod had his winter palace. It's where people love to come and relax in the perfect climate. The oasis and, and everything else that was going on in Jericho. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He comes into Jericho, and on the way in, he heals a blind man. And people are amazed, and you could just hear the buzz. The place was electric. Jesus is coming. Crowds are following him. Crowds are anticipating his coming. He heals a blind man on the way in. But he'll, he'll do something even greater than that. He's going to heal a rich man once he gets inside. That's a greater miracle. So he comes into the city of Jerusalem, verse 1 of chapter 19. And as he enters into Jerusalem, there's a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector. And he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since Jesus was coming that way. Now when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Let's stop right there. There are a lot of similarities between these two stories, and that's intentional. 
Luke wants to contrast these two rich guys. So this is a guy of authority, right? He's a chief tax collector. Now, tax collector has a lot of, of authority. Back in that day, Rome would hire Jewish people to collect taxes from their countrymen, other Jews. And Rome would say, demand 10%. But the tax collector had the authority to charge you 15%, and he would pocket the five. Now, that's why they were so hated. Uh, these tax collectors were Jews taking money from their own countrymen. This is white-collar crime. This is fraud. This is extortion. And you'll notice a little later on in the story when uh, Jesus says, I'm going to go to this guy's house, the people say, verse 7, Jesus has gone to the house of a sinner. It's in quotes. I mean, there are sinners, and there are sinners, right? You and I, we view ourselves as sinners, albeit rather respectable ones. We're, we're really pretty good people. Yeah, yeah, we're sinners. Everybody sins, but we're really pretty good people. We're on the high end of the sinner level. But Zacchaeus, he's on the bottom. He's on the same level with prostitutes and murderers. And not only was this guy a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. He not only got money from the people, he got money from the people who collected money from the people. He was the top of the pyramid scheme. He was doing well. There were three tax districts in Palestine. The northern one was Capernaum. And by the way, one of the guys working that system was a guy by the name of Matthew, who wrote the gospel according to. He came to Christ. The western district was uh, Caesarea on the sea, and the eastern district was Jericho. And that's where... Zacchaeus was working in this wonderful resort town where major roads converged. Almost everyone coming to Jerusalem from the east had to go through Jericho. And there was a tax for your body. There was a tax for your contents that you were carrying. There was a tax for your animals. There was a tax for your cart. There was even tax for one axle or two. And Zacchaeus got all the money, and boy, was he hated. But he was a man of authority. Now, whereas the rich young ruler was moral, respectable, people liked him, Zacchaeus was immoral. Extortion. He'd been taking money in a dishonest way, taking more than he should and pocketing the difference. He was rich, to be sure, but his wealth was gained in an unjust way, and the people knew it. But notice... Just like the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. See all the parallels? He was seeking Jesus, verse 3. I don't know whether his good friend from the north, Matthew, had said, listen, Zacchaeus, if Jesus ever comes your way, you got to see him. you got to hear him. This guy's amazing. Or maybe he heard about the blind man who was saved before Jesus got into town. Or maybe he was impressed with the crowds. I don't know, but he heard something about Jesus, and he wanted to see Jesus. Maybe there was a hole in his heart that the wealth could not satisfy. And people who have a lot of money 
will admit that having a lot of money is better than not having a lot of money. But they'll also admit it doesn't make them really happy. It doesn't really give peace and satisfy. So he's seeking Jesus, and he's got a problem, though. The crowd hates him, and he's vertically challenged. Scripture says he's short. So he can't see over the crowd, and like a little kid trying to work his way to the front, people aren't going to let him do that. I mean, would you? Zacchaeus is coming up. You give him a little elbow, and you kind of close ranks, right? You know what I'm, that's the way you and I drive. <laughs> We're going down the road, you know, and someone's trying to pass us on the left and cut in real quick, and what do we do? Go right ahead. No, we gas up so we can fill up that spot and so they can't get in. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I did it yesterday, then repented, but we do it all. <laughs> we do it all the time. So the crowd is there, and Zacchaeus wants a spot, and people have been sitting in their long chairs all day waiting for the parade, and they're not letting this guy get up to the front. So what is he going to do? He climbs up a tree. And the last thing in his mind is that Jesus is going to notice him. He doesn't want to be noticed. Everybody hates him. He just wants to see Jesus. And so here's the crowd. People are shouting, Son of God! Others are shouting, heal me. People are making all kinds of noise. The Bible says the crowd was large. And Jesus is walking down the street and he stops and he looks up into the tree and says, Zacchaeus, and I think he must have almost fallen and broken his neck. So I've got to have dinner at your house today. I've got to go to your house today. I want you to come down. And he shimmied down the tree. And what did the people say? Jesus, don't you know that this guy is a really bad sinner? Not like us. He's one of the bad ones. And Jesus said, that's okay, verse 10, because that's why I came to this earth. I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. He's a bad one? Oh, good. <laughs> that's the kind I'm looking for. And so he goes to the house of Zacchaeus. He has, Zacchaeus has a real encounter with Jesus, just like the rich young ruler. A real meeting, face-to-face -face conversation with the living Son of God. Fast forward to the dinner. I don't know all that was said, but I know this. In verse 8, some at, at some point in the meal, Zacchaeus stands up and he says, Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, and I'm sure some of, some of the dinner guests nudged each other and said, if, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. He says, if I've taken anything from anybody, I'll pay back four times. The law only required 20%. And Jesus said to him today, Salvation has come to this house. And Zacchaeus leaves filled with joy and generosity and saved. The rich young ruler leaves sad. Zacchaeus leaves saved. Jesus says of the rich young ruler, he's sad. How tragic that a rich man would love his wealth. And because of that love, 
won't come into the kingdom of God. He says, says of Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Here's real evidence of someone who is born again. By the way, as far as I know, this is the only story where Jesus ever invited himself over for dinner. Every time he was invited, he went, but he initiated this invite. He didn't care what people said. He came to save those who were lost. And in the midst of a meal, a great sinner got saved. There's nothing that moves the heart like the undeserved kindness of God. That word is grace. When grace touches your soul, your heart is moved and you're transformed. And by the way, Zacchaeus walked through the eye of the needle. He did the impossible. Or we should say God did the impossible for him. A rich man got saved. Now, what is Luke trying to tell us? Well, he's trying to tell us if you love anything more than you love God, you can't be saved. You've got to turn away. You've got to turn all of their loves into secondary things. And you've got to love God with all of your heart first. Give yourself to Him. And then he's saying this, when you do, everything else in your life will be radically changed. Once you give your heart and life to Christ. In fact, the way we handle our money is really an accurate indicator of our inward spiritual condition. You say, Pastor, I don't like that. That sounds manipulative. No, I'm just telling you the story of two rich guys who met, met Jesus. And the difference was grace touching the heart. And when grace touches your heart, the way you handle your resources is going to be different. It'll indicate whether you're really committed to Christ with everything you've got. That's why it's astounding to me that so many people can say they've been touched by the grace of God and yet they're, they're not generous like Jesus. I know we all battle with sin, but when grace touches the soul, we should be more like Zacchaeus. I don't care about money anymore. Zacchaeus went to bed that night a great deal poorer when you count up material things, but a great deal richer when you count eternal reward because he'd given his heart to Christ. When you become a Christian, you realize everything in the world belongs to God and everything you have is his as well, right? And so when God says to you, I want you to give a tenth of what you have, that's what a tithe means. A tithe is simply one-tenth. I want you to give a tenth. That's a good deal. He doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Why is he asking it then? Because he wants you to be reminded that everything belongs to him. A tenth is a good deal. He asked the rich young ruler to sell everything. I'll take one-tenth. But here's the shocking thing. The Barna Research Group that talks about Christians dealing with assessing the state of the church has come up with these statistics. Only 4% of believing Christians give 10% of their resources to God. Only 4% give 10%. 
How does that match up with these two stories? Maybe grace hasn't touched the heart. Oh, so You say, but pastor, you don't know how difficult my life is. Don't talk to me. Talk to God. He's the one who's asking for the ten. I'm not. There must be something in this faith where we step out and say, I'm going to give and I'm going to trust God. He's the one who commands me to do it. And I believe when I do it, I will be blessed because it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. I believe that. So I'm going to do it. And by the way, this is just not a pitch for some forward in faith campaign, although it deals with that. This is something that goes beyond the month of May 2014. This is for the rest of your life. Are you like the rich guy in chapter 18 or the rich guy in chapter 19? You say, I'm not rich. (laughs) My friend, yeah, you are. God has blessed you with so, so much. And he's not asking for all of it. He's asking for you to show that your heart is in tune with him. And money matters only as an indicator that he owns it all. And then the blessings will flow. Generosity then, in the end, living generously starts with genuine conversion. Are you in chapter 18 or in chapter 19? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace that has so moved our souls. Thank you for the wonderful love of Christ that washes us from all sin. Thank you that we can stand this day by faith alone in Christ alone and know that heaven is our home. But in this realm of discipleship, sometimes, Lord, we buck and sometimes we rebel and sometimes we think we know what's best. You've given us a clear path in discipleship. And as we noticed last week, it starts with giving you, giving back to you what you have blessed us with. It starts with honoring you with our wealth. So, Lord, teach us the grace and generosity of Zacchaeus liberate us from a love of things help us Lord to see that soon this world will end and only what we've given to you will last only what we've invested in for eternity will survive bless us Lord with your grace in Jesus name Amen